The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Ms. Catherine Pryor. She is an author and prior to being an author of children's books, she worked to create better food choices at institutions, large corporations, and food banks. I originally met her at a Healthcare Without Harm conference. We hit it off immediately. We've been friends ever since, and I've been following her work path as a children's book author. Catherine grew up digging in the soils of California and Arizona, but her home garden is now in Seattle. She made her picture book debut with Sylvia's Spinach, which I remember having Catherine on to discuss. She later came out with her second picture book titled Zora Zucchini, which won the 2016 Growing Good Kids Book Award. And her newest book, Bees, Bees, came out in spring of 2019, and it has become yet another one of my favorites. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you. It's great to be here. I remember you from Healthcare Without Harm days when you were a powerful force in improving food at institutions and helping large corporations and hospitals have better food available to their clientele. And you went from this big corporate influencer to writing children's books and influencing the next generation. How and why did you make that switch? So it's not something that I had originally planned on by any means. I had always loved writing and had spent a chunk of my 20s trying to make it as a novelist, whatever that means. And when I got tired of bartending and waiting tables, I went to grad school to study sustainable food and farming and ended up doing my master's work around reductions in pesticide use and promoting organic farming. And I found a job that I loved with Healthcare Without Harm. We were trying to harness the purchasing power of hospitals and other institutions. But through it all, I really felt like something was still missing. I missed writing. And so I started waking up about an hour before I needed to every morning, and I just wrote for fun. And then one day, I was in my state capital advocating for farm-to-school funding because we used a lot of the same resources And a dad told a story of how his daughter wouldn't eat spinach until she grew it in her school garden. And all of the other very smart advocates in the room were like, we need to do a case study. We need to write a white paper. And for whatever reason, I just had this thought in my head, I need to write a children's book. So over the next probably year or so, I just kind of scribbled away on what would become Sylvia's Spinach. And I just found that I really connected with the format And I also really connected with the kids. There was something to me about, you know, I would do a reading and then we would usually taste spinach at the end of the reading. Yes. And these kids were empowered to try something they'd never tried before. And I just fell in love with that. And so when Zora's Zucchini came out, I made what was a very 
difficult decision to leave work that I loved because I wanted to see what I could do as a writer. And I just felt like I did not have enough time to give both careers the attention that they deserved. So I stepped down from this job that I loved and have been focusing on writing primarily ever since. Well, I have to tell you that, you know, my kids are now adults, but the thing that I remember was going into their classrooms and reading to children, often books about food, and just as you experienced with tasting the spinach, there was something powerful about reading a book about food and then having the children taste it. And now with so many school gardens, we really have a wonderful opportunity to improve children's diets. And if you look at what we were up against when we were doing health promotion at an adult level where we were trying to influence policy, I remember years ago working at the University of Missouri And we were trying to tackle childhood obesity, and it was basically an exercise in hitting our heads against the wall because we didn't have what we have today with regard to school gardens. But this whole idea of we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. All we had to do was do exactly what the fast food industry was doing because they were being very successful in convincing kids that they should be eating food that was not in their best interest. And now through your work, and there are other authors too that I've so appreciated, Blueberries for Sal and others, where children are exposed to a charming story, lovable characters, and good food. And so that's what I love about your work. And I think that anybody who's a parent, a teacher, a grandparent, someone who just loves kids should be familiar with your books. And I highly recommend them to any librarian who's got a children's reading room So let's talk about the subjects. So you told me how you came upon the story of Sylvia's spinach. How do you determine what your next topic is going to be? That always really depends. I will say I write a lot of drafts that don't actually end up becoming books. So sometimes I'll scribble something out and then I'll be like, well, that's the grown-up in me that wants this to be a story. But then there's other times where I can stick with something long enough to find the way to make it a kid-friendly message. So I was inspired to write Bees, Bees, because like a lot of people who work in food and farming, I've been thinking about bee declines Mm. for quite some time now. But at the same time, I was doing school visits and noticing how many of these schools that had garden programs had started including pollinator gardens as a component of their school garden programming and were doing a lot of pollinator education and advocacy. And so I really wanted to write a bee book that would get kids thinking about all of the issues facing bees, but was also something that would help them see themselves as change agents who could take positive action on an issue to help. Mm-hmm. And I think that children are so naturally inclined to justice and also loving nature. And so if they see a problem, just as little bee does, she discovers that these bees that she's been enjoying are suddenly gone, and she is bound and determined to fix this problem. So I think it gives kids an example of how they can recognize a problem and then step in to change it so it empowers them on that level as well. 
We should talk about Bees Bees, and it's a charming book. You've got a fabulous illustrator. I love her drawings. Her name is Ellie Peterson. And I was going through this book, and I noticed that so Bee has discovered that her bees that she's been watching and admiring are gone from a dead tree. And she goes into her science teacher's room, and she says, what's going on here? And she ends up doing a science project and figuring out why the bees are gone. So tell me what happens next. I think of Bees, Bees as my community organizing book. Yes. (laughs) If Sylvia's Spinach was a tasting book and Zora Zucchini was a food waste book, Bees, Bees is very much a community organizing book because what Bee does is she goes and asks her classmates if they will plant flowers at home so that basically their entire neighborhood becomes a pollinator pathway. And spoiler alert that her bees do come back as the entire (laughs) neighborhood begins to bloom. And the thing that I love about this, and one of the things I was really hoping to convey with it, is that we rarely, if ever, are able to tackle big problems alone. And so B very much starts out being this independent young thinker who is analyzing the problem and she tries to just plant enough flowers for the bees. And of course, one person can't solve a problem like that alone. And so she does her research and she makes her case and she talks to her classmates and educates them on the problem. And together, her school is able to help bring back the pollinators to their neighborhood. So really, I want to help kids break out of this idea that one person can create radical change alone. Because I think everything that I've seen in my life is it usually takes a lot of people collaborating together. Absolutely. And it also helps us not feel so alone. And I think that the beauty of this little girl is that she knew to go and ask her teacher for help. And of course, the librarians are the heroes in so many books. (laughs) Because (laughs) it's like, oh, you're curious about this? Well, let me help you find some information. And so kudos to librarians of the world. And then she does the science report. But you asked me if I had noticed a picture in this book. But in the science room, there is a picture, not a full picture, but just enough to make out a portrait of Rachel Carson. Yeah. And the reason I pointed it out was I thought that might be something that you would be interested in. But really, it it was one of the most magical things that happened as part of creating this book. So I should say Ellie Peterson, in addition to being an incredibly talented artist, is also a science teacher. And so one of her big focuses in her career is trying to attract more girls to the field of science. Mm. And so she's always actively trying to promote women in science. And at one point when she first did that, art spread. She submitted it and the poster was like cat with the hang in there baby slogan that, you know, was on everyone's classroom when we were growing up. And the editor asked if she could change that, but didn't really give any more feedback on what it should be. And Ellie emailed me privately. She said she wanted to promote more women in science and asked if she could do a picture of Rachel Carson. And the thing that she didn't know, there were two things she didn't know at that point. One was that I had originally had quite a bit of language around pesticides in the scene where now Bee just sees that all of the flowers around her tree had been cut down, but I originally had had a lot of language around pesticides that I had to take out to make the manuscript 
more kid-friendly and more market-ready, but she didn't know that. And then the other thing that was just absolutely magical was one of the things that happened as I was creating this book was I had twin boys, and my husband and I were looking for names of inspiring people that we could name one of our children after, and we named one of our sons Carson after Rachel Carson. And so the fact that Ellie just plucked this incredibly inspiring woman out of history to put in the book just made it one of the biggest, most magical things that's happened in my writing career. Yeah, I can see that. I love that story. And you know, the thing is that there's so much misinformation out there that children are told. I remember going to a university lecture. There was a scientist who was speaking to kids and he said the insecticides target just one pest. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's not how I understand it. I understand pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, etc., to target the target organism, but there's always unintended consequences, and there's always non-target species that get affected. We just haven't always thought about that. But I think children need these kinds of books to help open up avenues for critical thinking about what does it mean if we use a pesticide? How is that going to impact not only the bees, but maybe our food system? And you have a great page in the book that says, if we don't have bees and other pollinators, we're not going to have all of this really wonderful food that we love, like fruits and nuts, etc. Yeah, that was so important to me on a couple different levels. So when I was first researching the book, I was thinking a lot about honeybees, but I Mm. couldn't figure out a storyline. And then I went to a class on pollinator gardens that was put on by the Xerces Society, which is a a phenomenal organization trying to protect pollinators and other important critters. And the teacher told us that even though honeybees are having a rough time right now, to put it mildly, that they weren't necessarily in danger of going extinct the way that certain other wild bees who don't produce honey potentially are. There's something like 20,000 or so species of wild bees who help us in very invisible ways by pollinating so much of the food that we eat. And yet it's really hard to appreciate something that is invisible to so much of us. So Mm -hmm. I changed the story to be about bumblebees, wild bees, who are also being threatened right now. And in fact, I didn't know this at the time, but Ellie based the illustrations of the bees on the rusty-patched bumblebee, which was given formal endangered species status in 2017. It used to be very common, but it's declined by 87%. And Mm -hmm. so she picked it as a bee who seemed like it needed a friend. And then I, the way that I tried to sneak in my message around bee conservation is the author's note at the end. Books that are being used in schools often include an author's note. And so I kind of snuck some language in there thinking that it was probably going to be edited out. So I always like to give kids and teachers a few ideas for how they can put concepts from my books into practice. And so I literally made a list. So I suggest planting pollinator gardens, buying food raised without pesticides, or asking their city councils to ban neonicotinoids. <laughs> and I was convinced that the editor was going to get this author's note and send it back to me with a note like, who are you kidding? We're marketing this book to K through third grade. Like, you can't include that. 
They didn't. And in fact, they have been absolute champions for that message. So I feel really, really lucky that I was able to tell, I feel like, a much more complete story of the threats to bees and some advocacy opportunities for kids than I might have otherwise had. Yeah. Catherine, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Catherine Pryor. She is an author who has had a long career working to improve the food at institutions and large corporations through Healthcare Without Harm. And now she is a full-time children's book author. But these books are real treasures because they touch on your past education and understanding of sustainable food systems and agriculture, and they just help the next generation along so that maybe they can start a little bit before where we are in the Mm -hmm. process of understanding how everything is all connected. So I have a couple of questions here because I think your book brings up a lot of topics for me. I remember one day walking by a woman's garden, and it was filled with wildflowers. You know, she had decided to get rid of her lawn, and she was out working in her garden, and I commented about it, and she said, yeah, you know, the kids in the neighborhood, they come by, and she said, A, they don't know what the insects are, and two, they're afraid of them. And so by all of us having more pollinator gardens in our yards and getting rid of the monoculture lawns that are dependent so much on pesticides, we can help educate children in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods. And oh, by the way, that we have this collection of really wonderful books that you wrote to back us up. But the idea that unless we introduce children to the importance of these insects and how we're connected to them through our food system, I don't think that children will really appreciate how important insects are in our lives. Right. And it is funny. I actually wasn't thinking about the fear of bees when I wrote this. I had forgotten that part of childhood. That is very real, though. And when I do readings of this, now one of the things I've started doing, which I didn't even think to do initially, was ask the kids to raise their hands who's a little bit afraid of bees. You know, mm-hmm. and say that that's a very normal thing. And then we talk about how actually most bees don't want to sting us. And maybe if they've had a bad experience, it's probably with a wasp or something like that. But actually helping them understand that there are so many different types of bees and that bees aren't necessarily something to be afraid of is a huge part of it. A lot of kids do have an experience of being stung by a bee. Mm-hmm. And So they have this very natural hesitancy to be around them. But once they start seeing them as an ally and as a friend, I've noticed that they've started to lose that fear. And I've had friends sending me pictures of drawings their kids are making of bees. And they'll have little messages like, thank you, bee. You know, here's some flowers. So you have pollen and nectar, you know, and like they really have started seeing themselves as being a friend to bees. And I think that is an incredible message to have when you're that young. I could not agree more. Yeah, this is a really impactful book because of all of those things that you said. Just helping children not be afraid and understanding the critical roles that bees and other insects have in our society. 
And I know that this is a concern, too, where we have community gardens. And I know that some cities, for example, will say, well, we don't want to have fruit trees because they bring bees. And it's like, yep, that's how we get the fruit. So even at an adult level, I think that adults will learn as they read the book to their kids. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one thing I noticed when Ellie and I were doing, we did a lot of joint book launch events together because we live relatively close to each other. And because she's a science teacher, she does a science lesson on bees. And the kids, I would look at their faces and they were wrapped. But the adults that were also there were nodding their heads. And I had several of them come up to me later and say, oh, I learned so much. And honestly, I learned a lot about bees writing this book. I certainly was not an expert. I'm not an expert on them. But when I planted a pollinator garden and I saw all of the different types of bees and other insects that came in, I just fell in love. I just wanted to sit in my garden and watch them do their thing. They are fascinating. Yeah. They are. And what a nice way to get kids away from a screen. There are several times during the year where teachers and librarians try to get together and say, let's take children away from all the time that they're spending on the screen and bring them back and get them into nature and help them see the world. And it does make us slow down and just sit and watch an insect pollinate flower to flower. And I think that's really important. And so books are key in getting kids away from screens. And I love that we are airing this program during a time when children are out of school and they have access to libraries, hopefully, and they have some time where their parents might say, you know what, we're not going to have the TV on or we're going to limit our computer time and we're going to do we're going to have book reading and we're going to maybe do something in the garden. And even kids that don't have access to a backyard where they can have a garden, they can still have a potted plant or they can maybe join a community garden. What do you tell kids when you talk to them? Like maybe they're in an urban setting. How do you guide them into a world where they can have a relationship with these insects? Well, I'm lucky. I do live in an urban setting myself. I live in in the city of Seattle, but we're very lucky in that we have a lot of parks. And so one thing that I have done as a parent is map out all of the different parks in my neighborhood. And there are a lot of days where my boys are only two, but I will take them, quote, hiking in the woods. And I just try to take them out to like a big field where there's nothing they can get hurt doing. And we watch bees and we watch birds and we count flowers. And I mean, there's really such a wealth once you get outside with them. And I've actually found in a lot of ways, it's easier when you have them outside. They tend to sleep better at night. Yes, They're in great moods, whereas the days that we're sort of trapped inside because it's raining or whatever... Usually everybody's a little bit grumpy by the end of right. the day of being trapped inside. But if we spend a whole afternoon in the park, we all come home in a good mood. And so I just can't say enough for like, if you don't have a big yard, mapping out what sort of parks and natural spaces are available to you. Mapping out if there's a community garden, you might just want to go walk around it with your kids. Have them count the different colors of flowers that they see, have them count the different bugs that they see, 
there's so much that they can investigate and don't be afraid to let them get a little bit dirty. Right. Dirt washes off. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I think it makes us all healthier. <laughs> I, yes, I think so too. And so, yeah, I would say just have that mental map as a parent of where the green open spaces are in your community that hopefully you can get your kids to or somebody can get your kids to because everybody is happier when they have that chance to interact with the natural world. I think so. We should talk about neonicotinoids in the few minutes that we have left, because maybe some of our listeners don't realize what the problem is with these insecticides. And I know that the industry that produces them likes to have this little shadow of doubt, like, well, bees can be sick for a lot of reasons, and it may not be the neonicotinoids. What are neonicotinoids? I had to look this up myself because it was a phrase that I heard a lot and I didn't exactly know what they are. It's an insecticide that is used in both agriculture and in landscaping. So it's just used in home gardens and that as well. And my understanding is that when they came out, they were supposed to be less toxic than other products, I think in particular to birds. But it's been shown that they have a really negative impact on pollinators. So they are absorbed by the plants, which means that they are present in the pollen and nectar. So when you have a pollinator that, you know, that's their food source, it makes it really dangerous for bees. Mm. And so I don't think we have to get too technical about right. it, although certainly when if people are actually advocating for change in their communities, you, you need a little bit more than this. But in the book, I describe them very simply as a type of pesticide that hurts bees. Yeah. And I also am, one of those things that I put in the book was about asking for city bans. Yes. And that is something that we're seeing here in the U.S. and Canada as well. The EU, actually, they took the step of banning them except for in the use of enclosed greenhouses. But in the U.S. and Canada, we're still really going city by city, town by town. So I know both Montreal and Vancouver have created some kind of neonicotinoid ban, and here in Washington, where I live, the cities of Seattle and Spokane both have bans. Other might as well. And these city-by-city city bans are they're a little bit confusing. They're probably time-consuming for the folks who work at the city and are actually trying to figure out how to implement them. But they're really better than nothing. I personally think that state or federal bans or limits would be much better and more effective. But I think that in some ways, some action is better than none. We know that limited progress was made on this during the Obama administration when they did things like they banned the use of neonicotinoids in national wildlife refuges. But unfortunately, most of that has been overturned by the Trump administration. So yeah. again, I think you work in your communities, you work where you are, and we always sort of have our eye on the prize of state and federal regulation looking at these as we know that it's like one of the three greatest threats to bees, right? So it's not the only threat to bees, but we know it's one of the top three. Right. And I think that putting our children first always is a really great position to be. So mm -hmm. I could not thank you enough for writing these beautiful books and for helping all children 
have a better understanding of their environment and a much better world. We need to close, so I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Catherine Pryor. She is the author of several books, Sylvia's Spinach, Zora's Zucchini, and her latest, Bees, Bees. If you're looking for great books to cuddle up with with your favorite kids, this is a great place to go. And we'll provide a website for finding and ordering her books. You can go to www.catherineprior.com. That's Catherine with a K. Prior is P-R-Y-O-R. Catherine, thank you so much for this work and for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love your show and what you do. Thank you. Thank you.